This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Dave Green. How you doing, Dave? Always nice to be with you, Bob. Well, Dave, we're going into the new year, and we've launched our 2017 GoFundMe campaign for the Historian's Podcast. A little bit about that at the beginning uh, of this episode. Our goal is going to be $3,500 this year. Which, uh, Dave, as you know, is a lot of money. That's a, that's, that's a bit of a money. Yeah, a bit of money. Yeah. But last year... Enough to pay your dentist bill. <laughs> that's true. Or pay, <laughs> pay the bills for the Historian's <laughs> Podcast. Last year, we raised $2,600, which covered most of our expenses. This year, the hope is to raise enough money to cover all of our technical and production expenses for the Historian's Podcast. We have a 2017 GoFundMe campaign, which is online, and it's always easy to donate online. Go to GoFundMe.com forward slash historians2017. Donations also may be sent to me with a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, at 125 Horstman Drive in Scotia, New York, 12302. That's Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, uh, H-O-R-S-T-M-A-N, in Scotia, New York, 12302. And as always, thank you very much. And I thought today, Dave, we'd talk about bowling. To me, bowling was one of the hallmark activities uh, back in the day, in this sort of period of time going up to 50, 60, 70 years ago that I frequently write about in the eastern Mohawk Valley. Let me ask you this. You were, you were raised in central New York. Was bowling big back there? Uh, it, it was, uh, for the most part. There was, uh, matter of fact, maybe many of your listeners over the years may have passed the biggest bowling alley in the Syracuse area, which was right at the intersection. You could see it from both Route 81 mm-hmm. and 90, the thruway. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was called Strike and Spike. Spare. Strike and spare. Yeah, that was the biggie up there. Do you think it's still there, strike and spare? Oh, nothing's still there, Bob. <laughs> no, that, Come to think of it. Bad. Well, a lot of the bowling alleys in my hometown of Amsterdam are gone. And But the most recent bowling tale, which uh, we told in my uh, column in the Daily uh, Gazette focused on history, had to do with a certain specific aspect of bowling, and that was pin setting. Now, this is really reaching, Dave, reaching. Were you ever a pin setter? No, no, never tried that as a part-time job as a kid. That, that, would, have, that would have proven interesting, I think. Well, needless to say, I wasn't a pin setter. No, no, not you. <laughs> but I did get enough. You, you were the pin. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I found a, a lot of interesting information about pin setting, specifically in Amsterdam, but relates to other communities as well. And just to kind of set the stage, before there were pin setting machines, which is what we have now, there were human beings who uh, set pins, and they were typically teenaged boys. However, coverage of a major fire that destroyed a downtown business block in Amsterdam in 1942 documented that some pin setters were girls. The fire started after second-floor bowling alleys collapsed in the McGibbon block on East Main Street, and the news coverage said two pin girls, as they were called, were trapped, Norma Hopkins and Irene Lewis. 
but maintenance man Harrison Wilson Sr. and an unidentified man came to the rescue, freed Naomi and uh, Irene and led them to safety along with the other uh, pin setters. Now, Harrison Wilson Sr. has come into uh, the stories I tell on the uh, podcast and also in my, my column uh, before this. He uh, was the great-grandfather of uh, the famous Seattle Seahawks quarterback, uh, Russell Wilson. His great-grandson is Russell Wilson, but that's another story. It doesn't really have to do with pin setting. In Amsterdam, the former Bannister Lanes in, in the city was known for using pin setters. And that's according to the bowling expert in my family, who is uh, my cousin Roger, Roger Cudmore. He's an excellent bowler, and his father, Percy Cuddy Cudmore, was consistently a top scorer on the local bowling scene from the 1930s through the 1960s. One, an aside on an aside here, talking about bowling, my uncle uh, Percy, you know, he was like my father, he was a bit older than my father, but Uncle Percy was born in England, 1905, I believe. They came over uh, in 1911, so he came to America as a as a little boy. Pretty much spent his whole life in Amsterdam, where he worked in the plumbing firm of uh, Keller and uh, Company. His he married a, uh, one of the Keller uh, women, if you will, uh, and, and he worked there. He also served in uh, World War II, fighting in in Italy and and elsewhere. But he was a great bowler, and this went on day for for years. I've, uh, somebody sent me, not just to somebody, a, a gentleman who's uh, very kind to my history endeavors named Sam Vomero, uh, sent me a photocopy of a newspaper from 1939 showing my Uncle Percy Cudmore and praising him as, back then even as one of the great bowlers in Amsterdam. And, and his record of uh, bowling went on consistently for many decades uh, from that. But what intrigued me back then was that Uncle Percy was bowling. You know, he's in that classic stance where you hold the bowling ball right in front of mm-hmm. your... So, something you don't partake in, but I can see the picture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, he's doing that as he's wearing a tie and a long sleeve shirt. Of course. So, and probably leather shoes. <laughs> leather shoes. Uh, and I talked to my cousin Roger, who said it was a common practice to wear a tie and long sleeve shirt to a bowl in those days. And Roger says, though, his first recollection, he was born right after World War II, Roger, uh, his first recollection of going with his father to bowl, which was at a, you mentioned the bowling alley in Syracuse, another, uh, we already mentioned Bannister's Bowling Alley in Amsterdam. There was also the Wilton Lanes uh, on uh, Main Street run by Tony Griffin. But Roger doesn't remember the suit and tie, but he does remember his father wearing a bowling uniform, you know, and I think that's still kind of common if you're in a league, right, a bowling shirt. Bob, I, I do have a question. Go ahead. Who, uh, here's a side to an aside to a side. Who, I assume somewhere after the war, broke the dress code? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, when did we go from leather shoes to the current rubber shoes we <laughs> well, wear? Well, I did, that I don't uh, don't know, except Roger said 
his recollection on the, in the 50s, he said, quote, the Thai thing must have become old hat. That's it. <laughs> Some, somebody was sick and tired of all right. No, but, you know, that, that dress code lasted well into the 50s. Oh, yeah. No, it lasted into the 60s. Yes, and in fact, it would apply to women as well because my uh, Percy's wife was a woman named Pansy Keller Cudmore. She was a bowler. Her twin sister, Daisy Keller Sager, was a bowler. And Roger produced for me a, a picture of his mother and his aunt uh, dressed up to bowl. And they're all wearing dresses, for one thing, uh, which match, as he pointed out, mm-hmm. in their uh, their bowling league. Uh, that, that visual is ingrained in our brains, Bob. In, indeed. Um, another little uh, aside, I, I guess, on um, Uncle per- my Uncle Percy is that he was this consistent bowler getting like 290s, uh, 270s, 280s in many games, you know, rolling in the 700s up, uh, you know, for decades. But he never rolled a perfect game, even though Roger, for example, Roger Cudmore, his son, who uh, has done bowling most of his life, has had a dozen or more uh, perfect games. And uh, Roger said, and I've heard this from other bowlers, that they have sort of changed the logistics of the alley. You know, it was harder to get a strike. <laughs> they put in a curved alley. <laughs> right, in the old days. <laughs> so they're cheating me. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it was really done on purpose for right. the score, but, you know, bowling is a participatory sport, right? Yeah, it's a one-man sport. Yeah, and so people like big scores. Right, and they obviously <laughs> took it seriously. <laughs> right. So, I mean, making it so they can, it's easier to get a strike. You know, it doesn't really surprise me. But let's go back to setting pins, and let's uh, ex- uh, explain the system at the Bannister Lanes in uh, Amsterdam, which was in, um, was in one location to move to another in the city of Amsterdam. It first was on Division Street, with eight lanes on the first floor, eight lanes on the second floor. Ultimately, it moved to Church Street. Old mill buildings. Really? Bowling alley on, on two separate floors on top of each other? Yeah, yeah. I never well, heard of such a thing. Well, if we go back to the beginning oh, story. Oh, serious stuff. Yeah. The, this, you know, the McGibbon block downtown, I mean, the bowling wasn't on the first floor. The bowling was on the second floor. All right. So, and the people on the first floor had a real headache. <laughs> yes. They did. Bang, bang. But Roger said um, he, he and his brothers, Gary and the late David Cudmore, bowled at Bannister's. He's, the cost... Uh, for three games in shoes, uh, Roger reported, was $1. And there are those shoes. And you got to rent the shoes. Uh-huh. And Roger looked into becoming a pin setter, but never did. But he did explain how it worked at Bannister's. At Bannister's, and this needs you know a little visual. This story has all, all kinds of possibilities. At Bannister's, the pin setter would step on a lever in the pit area behind the bowling lane, and spikes would come up on the lane. The pins that had had holes in the bottom, and the pin setter set the pins on the spikes. I get it. And released the lever, which lowered the spikes. Efficient. Right. And then when somebody bowled, uh, the fallen pins, uh, which, was call, which they called dead wood, had to be cleared from the alley. And the bowling ball had to be picked up, put on a track, and pushed to return the ball to the bowler. All of this done by a machine these days. That, that seems simpler than what I perceive a few years later with the big machine coming down from the top. Yes. Well, you know, all the pins spinning around and dropping in and resetting. Right. Well, there was an intermediate step. I mean, this the banisters alleys, you know, had the, you know, it was all done by the pin setter. 
But by the time uh, two other Amsterdam natives, uh, who I've known for many years, David Dybus and Norbert Krasinski, uh, by the time they got to be pin setters uh, in the early 1960s, there was a, a, a machine did some of the work, but not all of it. Uh, Dybus and Krasinski were pin setters at the six-lane bowling alley located in what was then the St. John's Club, affiliated with St. John's Roman Catholic Church, was the St. John's Club on 4th Avenue in Park Hill, a neighborhood in Amsterdam. Today, that building still exists. It doesn't have the bowling alleys anymore. It's now the Elks Lodge, but you can still see the wood with the bowling lane markings in what is now the Elks Ceremonial Room. Dybus and Kaczynski said the St. John's Club alleys had machines which partially automated the process. The pin setter would pick up the fallen pins, being careful, uh, this is after the first ball is thrown, not to knock over pins, which the bowler left still standing, then put the dead wood, as they called it, into the machine. After the bowler's second ball, the pin setter would put the remaining pins into the machines, then start the motor manually, you know, pressing a button. The machine, though, then, as you say, came over the alley and set the pins on the alley. I don't think I've ever heard this much information about <laughs> bowling. Isn't this something? <laughs> well, we got. I got pre- to go home and tell mom. <laughs> I know we got a pretty good. Re- you know, I never know with these things, of course. But you know, if, after the story ran, I did hear from a number of people who would set pins or had little, uh, maybe just maybe little differences on how it was done, wherever it was they said. Great pins. part-time job. Yeah, indeed. Well, and by the way, but just the aside to the asides, way back at the beginning of this conversation, you, you often refer to your, your family and, and, and use the family name Cuddy. Yes. And, and I don't ever recall that in this, between the two of us, for example, or the years we've worked together, not too many people refer you to No. No. No, no, they don't. Uh, some have called me Cuddles over the years. Right. Um, and that's appropriate late, as well. Yeah, because I was, they called me that when I was lived over and worked in the Berkshires. But, <clears throat> and I think the person that I even know who carried it over from there, because I worked with her in both places. I worked with Judy Sanders a bit over in the Berkshires, and then she was uh, here in the Capital District. And soon, you know, as soon as she saw me, when I started working at WGY, she went, hey, cuddles. And, you know, and of course, that's the kind of thing people pick up on. Oh, cuddles. <laughs> That's pretty good. That, that is fascinating that, <laughs> that some people would feel comfortable immediately using that name. Yeah, cuddles. That's because your aura, Bob, your aura, aura. is friendly. Well, it's cuddy. And, to, you know, every road in this story, Dave, takes us somewhere else. But right. There's a difference in the Cudmore family. You see, my Uncle Percy and, and my cousin Roger and uh, his brothers, they spell cuddy C-U-D-Y. And I know that because my Uncle Percy's bowling shirts said C-U-D-Y. But in my family, we always spelled it, although nobody in my family had a bowling uniform, as C-U-D-D-Y. So I don't know. I've got to start writing this stuff down. It is is something. All right. right, But back to uh, uh, St. John's Club and the the pin setting with uh, David Dybus and Norbert Kaczynski. They said, in fact, they did this. Uh, and, you know, Cousin Roger would agree they did this at, at Bannisters at well. Often, any given pin setter would jump alleys, which meant he or she would handle two at a time from the pit behind the, the 
bowling lane. And paid twice as much, correct? Well, well yes, I guess they <laughs> no, would. No. Well, sometimes a pin setter, of course, would get hit by a flying pin. I mean, right. there was a certain amount of yeah. uh, danger uh, to this. Uh, Amsterdam native Bill Leone, who suggested this topic, was a pin setter in a four-lane bowling alley in the basement of the then St. Mary's Institute on Forbes Street. And that's another thing that intrigues me about this. I mean, the big bowling alleys like you described in Syracuse or Bannister Lanes in Amsterdam, the Wilton Lanes, and we had Pin Haven, and today we have Skyview Lanes up on Wallens Corners Road. I mean, these are the big bowling alleys, but there were a lot of organizations that had bowling alleys, you know, just uh, like a... In the Elks Club? Yeah, the Elks Club. And they're, they're a Catholic school. They had a bowling alleys in the in the basement. I thought for sure you were going to say the four-lane bowling alley was on the seventh floor. <laughs> no, no, it was in the basement. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, And Mr. Leone, uh, who set pins at St. Mary's Institute, said the man who managed the alleys was uh, Ken Mannion. And David Dibus said the manager of bowling at St. John's was a man named Chet Wall, whose nickname was the Sheriff. <laughs> you know, he was sort of <laughs> this. Well, anyway, uh, he ran I can a see t- this guy. Yeah, I can yeah, see him. Tight ship. Right. Uh, and some pin setters at St. John's were females. And here's what they earned: pin setters. And I heard this from several of them. You know, again, we're talking back in the early '60s, probably late '50s. Pin setters earned ten cents a game, and typically that would be. Three dollars for they said for a night's uh, a night's work. Late fifties, early sixties. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes though there were tips. Uh, David Dibus recalled tips were good during St. John's annual bowling tournament, and he said this is where the sheriff came into play. The man that was the manager, Sheriff Wall, said Dibus was very fair in dividing the tips among the pin setters. I think down to the penny. That's why he was the sheriff. And if you want to compare, you know, what David, for example, or Norbert or Bill could, could uh, do with the money they're earning, you know, this 10 cents a game, uh, Dave recalls that an eight-ounce draft beer cost 10 cents at St. John's Club. Not that he would have bought one as a teenage pin setter. And mobile gas on the corner at the same time, I recall, as my reference engaged to all of this was 24 cents a gallon. Would be, and uh, however, Dave did buy soda, and he said that was also a dime. And his favorite, yet another aside, was True Aid orange soda. I think I remember, or Dad's, or possibly you could go for Dad's root beer. Dad's root beer. Now another point about uh, uh, Dave Dibus, uh, and I grew up with Dave all through my grade school and junior high and high school years. He set pins during our junior year in high school, and he told me he shed 20 pounds. He said the job helped him slim down before leaving for college in 1963. I believe it. Yeah. What was your very first job, Doug? I guess it would be the one you were paid for. It really was radio. Was it really? Yeah. I was a junior in high school, much as Dave, you know, when he was setting pins, uh, and I got a job as a Sunday announcer at WCSS in uh, in Amsterdam. Somehow I uh, was able to avoid the paperboy route. The uh, that's uh, because you avoided pins. it. Yeah, I did. So about you? Did you uh, were you a paper 
boy? Or? I was a paper boy for both the, both the morning and uh, night newspaper. Still there, the Post Standard in the morning and the Herald Journal in the evening. Really? So. Yeah, made it made a few dollars. Always loved it at Christmas time when they gave you the calendars to sell. Yeah, remember the those? Right. You go to door to door. If you did a good job, you know, somebody give you a five dollar bill for it. Whoa, oh, whoa, there yeah. you floating in money. Well, see, it was like uh, Divers and Kaczynski when they had the St. John's Bowling Tournament. <laughs> yeah. You know, people perhaps had had a few of those 10-cent drafts. Said, yeah, there you go, kid. That's what 10 cents will get you. <laughs> that's right. Well, and also, and I, I guess I've really sort of exhausted the bowling story. And maybe uh, maybe you're glad to hear that, Dave. I'm not really. No, I'm still with you. Okay, but the uh, it occurs to me there's a little link between the bowling story, and I did want to bring up, the Eccentric Club. I like that name. Well, it is an unusual name, and it's the name of a private club in Gloversville, Gloversville, New York. And the uh, connection to bowling is they have two bowling lanes in their basement. I've seen them. In fact, the Eccentric Club has kind of had a resurgence in recent years. You know, they have their own building uh, in downtown Gloversville, and they've got the uh, bowling lanes working. And, you know, I was down there, and I can't recall if they actually have to set the pins. They may, you know, or they may have some kind of machine that that does it. But it's just something that, uh, you know, the members, you know, after they they sit in those plush armchairs you think of in in a private club and they go down in the basement, they bowl a couple of uh, games. Well, is it not true that there's there's a bowling alley in the White House? Yes. Now, who put that in? Was it Richard Nixon? You know, that came up recently in a documentary, right. and I don't recall, maybe Eisenhower? Or... Okay, well, I, I still bank, for some reason I think... I don't, pick, Bob, no no more than you, I do not picture Richard Nixon bowling. <laughs> well, I don't either, but I don't picture him doing, like, golf, so maybe it was something that was maybe what his kids like to do, or something He, he like spent that. most of his time recording. <laughs> That's true. You've got to be careful what you say <laughs> at the bowling alley. Yeah. But um, back to the eccentric club itself. Right. Um, ec- eccentrics <laughs> if you want, how, how how is that defined? Well, I, I actually looked that up to do the story. It's defined as a person of unusual beliefs or um, unusual actions, uh, uh, but you know, not yeah, you know. There's like a difference between being eccentric and being insane. <laughs> Where is that fine line? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know, but it, in fact, I've sometimes heard it said that you know, an eccentric is somebody who's got money and is indulged for his or her maybe unusual things like, you know, collecting soda cans or something like that. But but on the other hand, it could be the poor lady who took in all of the cats at the other end of town. It could be. But the eccentric club has existed in Gloversville, or eccentrics have banded together at a Gloversville social club for over 130 years. It started in the uh, 1870s or 80s, as I recall. And one early member whose name, you know, because I've looked up a number of clippings about the eccentric club over time, an early member, Asa Barrett Peak, took credit for coming up with that name. He said he came up with the name, or he thought that would be a good name for the club, after reading Jules Verne's 1873 novel, Around the World in 80 Days. Peak wrote, and this was a clipping from the 1930s where he made this statement, he said, quote, the wager that led to this trip, in other words, the around-the-world trip, was made in a club in London called the Eccentric Club. Well, I did some fact-checking, Dave, and I hope that you know the descendants of Mr. Peak aren't uh, perturbed, but 
actually, in the novel, the main character is Phileas Fogg, and he is repeatedly characterized as eccentric in the novel. However, the wager for making that, you know, he said, I can make a trip around the world in 80 days, and somebody said he couldn't, was made at the Reform Club. They didn't re- reference the eccentric. You're out to bust balloons. <laughs> I know. And eccentric is defined as a person of unconventional views or behavior. There is or there has been over time an eccentric club in London. As far as I know, it's the only two in the world are the one in London. If it still exists, it, it's, it exists. But unlike Glover's, I don't think it has a clubhouse anymore. Seems like two, two, is, two is plenty, Bob. Could be. Yeah. Another version, version of the... Uh, origin of the name, is that it came from a fishing boat called the Eccentric, which early members chartered uh, back in the 1800s on a trip to Block Island, Rhode Island. But uh, whatever the origin of the name, after the club became the Eccentric Club, it was Gloversville's preeminent club for movers and shakers. And of course, back then, it was a men's club, and it had several rented locations, but eventually built its own very nice stone building at North Main and Spring Streets. One prominent member of the eccentric club was the industrialist Lucius Litauer, which is a name that is famous in Gloversville history. Lucius uh, Litauer was the son of Nathan Litauer. His father, Nathan, uh, started the Litauers into the glove business, and Lucius really sort of expanded what they did. And, uh, their company became much bigger and more prominent. They made a lot of money, and uh, Lucius Litauer served in Congress for some terms, was a friend of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, was considered even for a cabinet post, but uh, some there was some difficulty about uh, his role in, well, the <laughs> Try to say it quickly because we're running out of time. His role in bringing in some jewelry into the country was that maybe he was trying to avoid customs with that, and that kind of made him a little, you know, his reputation a little shaky for a while. But, Don't know about that. Bob. Yep. But he again, he kind of persevered through that. Uh, but his obituary, and he became a great philanthropist, gave a lot of uh, money. Uh, for example, the hospital is named for his father, Nathan Litauer, up in uh, Gloversville. Um, so he's well known as a philanthropist, and his obituary noted uh, that he was a member of the club, the eccentric club, although there have been reports over the years that that wasn't so. But no, he was a member of the uh, eccentric club and spent a lot of time there when he would come back to visit Gloversville toward the end of his life because he was no longer living in Gloversville. The eccentric club began admitting women back in 1983, and by now has had several uh, women uh, presidents, and as I mentioned, they've recently been uh, embarked on a building or a refurbishing program. They, they have a nice entrance, and they've fixed up the uh, entrance. And at last uh, report, a man named uh, Bob Phillips is currently president of the Eccentric Club. Enjoyed that story. Yes. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever <clears throat> belonged to a club <laughs> no, nor have I, actually. And well, the fact that the people who did well in the industries up there and then turned around and gave all that money to establish hospitals, what a, what a great thing. Yeah, that, that is, a, is a great thing. In fact, there's a statue of Lucius Litauer, not on the grounds of the eccentric club, but across the street where he, you know, and it was unusual in that it was built in his lifetime. 
like in the late 30s. Otherwise, he accomplished something. Right. And uh, and, and now it kind of escapes me why it was in the location it was in. It became, the location became a high school, and now it's um, it's now it's a housing uh, complex in, um, in Gloversville. But uh, Lucius Littauer. And now, you know, to make the, correct the record, you know, I did belong to a club. When I was in high school, I was in the Model Railroad Club and the Debate Club. All right. No, I, I was in the uh, Radio Announcers Club. There. I mean, exactly. Uh, you, need, you need to define what a club is, you know. A, a small group of people who huddle in the corner or something officially <laughs> set up and we meet once a week. Yeah. Well, it, it, it uh, runs the gamut, as you say. Right. And I think in general, and we're just out of time, uh, that's one of the changes in America. We don't have as many clubs. Like in the bowling story, I referenced the St. John's Club. And also True. the Elks Club, which still exists, but, for example, the St. John's uh, Club does not. Well, Dave, we're uh, we're about out of time, as they say. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. And I, I think that 2017 is going to be a big year. I think so as well. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.